You're listening to the Westminster Canterbury Tales podcast, creating community to foster joy and well-being. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Leadership Podcast Series. I am Elizabeth Hines, and I will be your host for this leadership series. I would like to welcome to our listening audience, Ben Unko, the president and CEO of Westminster Canterbury. Hello, Ben. Hello, it's great to be here. In this series, we will be discussing accountability. But before we dive in into our discussion today, let's start with a simple icebreaker. Ben, what is one thing on your bucket list that you are eager to check off? Well, yeah, I think as we get older, all of us want probably more experiences than things, and usually bucket lists are experiences. So I like to travel and uh, want to keep doing some of that as an empty nester and all that. Maybe uh, get to Africa someday would be a good bucket list thing. The other thing that I go back and forth on is getting a pilot's license. Oh, those are two things. My wife says we have to update our life insurance before I can do that. Um, but anyway, <laughs> she says, you're not good at mechanical things. I'm not sure you want to be up in a plane that you're piloting. But anyway, those are two bucket list items. Oh, very interesting. Can you provide a brief recap of your background and career journey that led you to your current role at Westminster Canterbury? Sure. I've been lucky enough to have... Um, the opportunity for education, and that's a wonderful thing. I grew up first in my family to go to college, and my parents were very supportive of me wanting to get a good education. I was a probably a lazy kid, and uh, working on farms helped convince me that they weren't probably going to air-condition farms in my lifetime, and that I probably wanted to go get an education. So I uh, was interested in being involved in politics or some sort of public service, uh, maybe elective office as a kid, and thought law school would be good training for that and a way to support your family if the election didn't go the right way. And so I went off to law school and found out I liked that more than I thought I would and had done some work in politics and thought I might like that less than I thought I would. Anyway, I was a lawyer for seven years and then practicing in Baltimore. I did trial work, product liability defense. So General Motors, car manufacturers, trampoline cases, defending BB gun manufacturers, whatever. If a product could hurt somebody, we defended the design of the product or the manufacturer of the product. And after about five years, I won't say I was anywhere close to Clarence Darrow or a fully accomplished lawyer, but I, I sort of you know, knew that I was going to be okay in this profession, that I could do it. And as the ego-driven reasons for doing it wane and you say, okay, I think I belong. I can do this. The can I question fades and then the should I question starts. Is this how I want to spend the rest of my life? So a law firm in Atlanta offered me a job. I ended up staying in Baltimore and they told me I'd be a partner in two years. And during that two years, I started to think, do I really want to live at this pace? I rarely got home to read a bedtime story and all of that. And um, I had a neighbor across the street who had joined a company, Erickson Senior Living, a family held company, but they had these very large 2,000-member life plan communities like Westminster, just three times as big. And he had three of them at the time, and he wanted to grow to more. And uh, he was looking to bring people into the company and train them. 
and a neighbor across the street was involved with that company and convinced me to come take a look. And I walked around their main campus in Baltimore, Charlestown, and said, gosh, everybody's happy here. I could be the mayor of this city and contribute to this joy and wellness I see around me. And I wouldn't have to run for re-election every four years and go to church chicken dinners and shake hands and raise money all the time like you do in politics. Of course, you run for re-election every day when you're leading a senior living community. But anyway, it was, it's, it was fun and uh, rang a bell with me and I joined his company. And I like the fact that you're a generalist. There's many different areas. We have to know how to do plant and property maintenance well. We have to know how to sell the product and market to older adults to come live here. We have to do food well. It has to taste good. It can't poison anybody. We have to do healthcare right. So there's a variety of things that make up running a successful senior living organization that I found appealing as a generalist. And uh, just the opportunity to be the mayor and do something that you knew impacted lives more directly both on the team and among your customers, I started thinking, gosh, if I were to finish my career and if I had been a good lawyer, I might be able to say, well, he saved, I don't know, make up a number, half a million, maybe half a billion dollars of good for General Motors and verdict money. Well, is that what you really want in your tombstone? You know, it just doesn't impact enough people. It doesn't do enough good in society. Whereas some sort of human service got back to more of those original roots and desires to be in politics to improve life for people. And so anyway, that's how I got into senior living. I was very lucky to be pulled out. They paid me for a year just to learn. I rotated through each of the departments. There was only one day a week that was really classroom education, but I shadowed housekeepers for two weeks. I you know, was in the kitchen. I did every one of the jobs, and that was the way in which they trained us with the idea of growing executive directors in the future for their communities. And, you know, that company grew quickly to 22 or so communities during my 10 years there from three to 20. And so I was able to, every two years I had a new job and every three or four years a new city. And that was fun and exciting to grow as that company grew. And then I came to Virginia Beach and I've been here now for 14 years. Wow, an awesome story. It's very impressive how you were molded before you arrive here. Yeah, God has a way of putting in your path whatever it is that's going to get you onto the right path if you're willing to listen. Yes. Take advantage of the opportunities, the doors that open and close along the way and the opportunities that come before you. Yes, and what inspired you to lead? Because you went to a lot of different departments and you were grooming yourself for who you are now. So in your upbringing... Are you a natural-born leader? Oh, my younger sisters would probably say so, but I, I was the oldest in my family. I guess there's sort of a some might be something to the birth order thing about leadership and <clears throat> wanting to have uh, impact on the environment around you. I think probably you know I was a kid who was slow at learning to read, uh, some dyslexia, things like that. Socially awkward. As I got good at something, everybody likes to have significance and worth and being better at school. And then I always liked uh, authority. I don't know. I, from the, you know, I couldn't throw the football well, so I'd be the umpire, you know, <laughs> or, the, or, the, or the referee. See, you even got the wrong sport with matching the terms of referee and umpire. But anyway, I've always, I don't know what it is. I've always enjoyed leading. And authority is the immature early sort of track. And then the reward of having a multiplier effect 
if you want your life and your professional energies to produce good in the world, why wouldn't you want to do it in a leadership capacity where you can multiply those efforts through other people by making them better and touching more people that way? If you're a great tax advisor, you might advise 50 clients. I don't know, make it up or a lawyer. You can impact each of those clients one-on-one. But when you lead an organization, you have an opportunity to set a tone and a culture that ripples out into good things that touch a lot more people. So I've been always a big university person, a big, I like going to big campuses. I like big things. And when you have an opportunity to impact more people, that's what leadership does. Yes, and you have done it quite well in the areas of Westminster and your upbringing and how your path was led before you. Great accomplishment. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, And regarding to making a difference, John C. Maxwell titled a book called The Different Maker, and he subtitled it, Making Your Attitude Your Greatest Assets. And he writes that attitude is a primary component in determining success. And he also explained that attitude is the difference in how we approach and deal with relationship and challenges. I've been in you sharing with the listening audience. How do you perceive yourself as a different maker? Well, that's the whole reason the draw of the leadership and all of that is to have impact. And so you want to make a difference and have a greater impact, whatever organization you're leading. And so at Attitude, I agree with Maxwell as a key component in that. And I think all of us are leaders in that we have to lead ourselves every day, right? So there's an internal discipline and an internal drive that we all have in captaining our own ship and our own contribution to a larger group. But attitude, I couldn't agree with them more, is key. So if you're going to decide to mail it in all your life, and there are people who make the decision, you know, hey, I'm going to put forth X amount of effort, and that's it. And that's all that I expect of myself or anybody else should expect of me. I mean, you might luck into making a difference, but, you know, rare will the person be who can really make a difference there. If you come into any situation and say, what level of effort, would I expect if I were on the other side of this? If I were the customer, if I were the patient or the resident, that's a whole different thing. And your attitude has to be, how could I do my reasonable best to do the most good? Wesley says, do all the good you can in all the ways you can, to all the people you can, for so ever long as you can. And there are a couple other cans in there from Wesley. And so, yeah, you can't burn yourself out, but you can give it your best. I know there's a fellow, I think his name is Jimmy Burns, who was a secretary of state for Franklin Roosevelt. And somebody asked him, you'd come from the country, you know, what makes, why are you the secretary of state? You know, what makes you different from other people? And he says, about 10% more effort. That's all it is that separates average from preeminent often. And so attitude is what's possible, not what's holding me back. You know, what can we do? Not why can't we do it? That's an important attitude of openness and creativity and jumping obstacles. If it's important to do, it's important to try to break through the barriers. And it's that effort that I call it drive, uh, professional will, professional drive. If you have that and you really want to be excellent and you're willing to put in the work, there's a lot of rewards from that. You hope you get the positive feedback loop as an employee, as a team member, as a leader that keeps encouraging you to do that. Knowing someday in our profession, 
the shoe's going to be on the other foot. <laughs> what do we want when we entrust so much money to a group of people to serve us and care for us, even in the independent years, but especially later on, you know, you want people who are trustworthy. You want people who are trying to do their very best, uh, reasonable best under circumstances, who own things and follow through. That's, you know, just the golden rule in terms of what should the standard be? What would I want if the shoe were on the other foot? And then how do we get there? And what are the ways we can think a little harder and do more and do better? Yes. And uh, relating that to accountability, because when you're providing these services, you want to give them the best that you can give. And everybody's best is not the same, but you know your best, and accountability should be in your best. Yeah, that should be the goal. The goal should be doing the best we can, our reasonable best. You know, again, you can't sacrifice your family life. You can't get yourself sick. There are plenty of people who live life out of balance, but your reasonable best is what you ought to bring every day. And in terms of accountability, there's a good and a bad part of accountability, and most people tend to hear that word and get afraid and focus on the bad part, but... Accountability is noticing, having ways to notice performance and giving feedback. And there's a good part of accountability, too. When you notice that somebody's really good at what they do and you care enough to notice that and bring it back, that's, that's the positive accountability. And that's the positive reward feedback loop that we hope exists among good leaders. Somebody once put it to me and said, you know, we've all had these school projects or many of us have had a school project where you're assigned a group project with four people and somebody loafs in the project. What do you do in that situation? Well, you know, this was happened to be career advice about is it incumbent among the other three workers to tell the boss somebody's and this person was giving advice that said, no, it's up to the boss to figure out who that person is and to help do something about it. And I think you still can speak up if you see somebody is <laughs> loafing and really <laughs> stealing from residents by not getting eight hours of work for eight hours pay. But it's true. It's our job as a leader to have mechanisms and ways to know who's not pulling their weights so that we can help train them and get them the right attitude. Or if they won't develop the right skills and the right attitude, if that's who they are, it's not fair to the others who are working hard to leave them in place because they're going to be tempted to pull back. If we're all making the same money and Sarah only cleans one apartment a day and I clean five and nobody cares or notices, well, I think I better slow down then. (laughs) And so that is the essence of accountability is noticing results and giving feedback about it and letting people know that it matters that we give preeminent results all the time. But people depend on us and, and the leader's know it by data or by any other means that it takes, happy or not scores, whatever it takes, observation. And the closer you are to the front line, the more observing there should be. But yeah, it's our job to figure that out and to um, first you want to inspire people to do the right thing. You know, anybody can think of their job as a bricklayer or as a cathedral builder. And that can make all the difference in the world. So you want to inspire people about what our mission is and that every role is important. So some people will be through inspiration, motivated to give their personal best. Others need more (laughs) to uh, give their personal best. And all of us are inflated by, well done, or I saw that, and did you ever think about trying it this way? You know, there are gentle ways to make corrections also. It doesn't have to be a, a sledgehammer every time. When I try to 
make a course correction for somebody, I think of what's the least bothersome way in which I can do it. For some people who work with me, if I raise my eyebrow, it might cut them to the quick, you know? Other people, not at my level, usually at the executive level, you have to grab their darn hand and pull the rudder over on the sailing boat to get it to change course. And uh, you have to know what's the most gentle way that I can communicate a sign or a signal that gets people to make the course corrections that they need to make that add up over time to someone who's driven for their own reasons and desires uh, to be the best they can be. Well, that was well said, uh, driven into that accountability and walking in it at the same time. So it impresses the new leaders that are coming out that knowing that you have to know the front line to operate on the front line. Yeah, you can't assume quality. That's probably the biggest mistake that people make. There are several reasons why people aren't good at accountability as leaders. One, their personality is such that they can't handle confrontation and conflict. Well, then if you can't confront, you can't lead. Go be a doctor and operate on a kidney. Go be a mechanic and fix a car. Go, you know, there are buckets of jobs. Some jobs are good by themselves. Painting a painting might be a job you can do well by yourself and you enjoy that. Working with things, fixing cars. Some people are good at working with just one other person. One-on-one client relationship, uh, an attorney and the client, a tax lawyer or something like that. And then there are the people who are good at working at uh, with groups and leading groups. And I always say, if you can't confront, you can't lead. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about it. In fact, we don't want jerks in leadership. There are gentle, kind, respectful ways to point out opportunities to do things better. At the end, though, you have to say, does this person really want to do it better? <laughs> and, and is this relationship, you know, how much energy am I investing in trying to get this person up to the bar? Skills we can teach. Core personality and fit, not so much. I can't put them back in the womb, and I can't re-raise them. A lot of core personality is already set. Drive, I can affect some, but is it? will it be sustainable? So I always look at skills. You can teach that. Fit core personality for the role that they're in, and if you can't confront, then you shouldn't be in the leadership roles. So skills, uh, fit core personality for the role, and then uh, drive is that bucket that we want for everybody. And sometimes, you know, drive can be instilled, but sometimes it can't. Drive to excellence. Yeah, that's a very good point, drive. And drive demonstrates itself. You can see drive. Mm -hmm. It's not silent. It speaks and it performs. So when a leader is walking in those components, you know what you have. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that uh, those three buckets described as thrill, will, and skill. So you can teach some skills. Thrill might be how closely your core personality matches your role. And then will is that drive component. Are you picking your attitude? Do you want to give it your all? Is that who you are? Do you have the wind in your sails to be a preeminent person in this role over a long period of time? Okay. That plays volume uh, to see the whole picture as an executive role that you operate in. And 
you've definitely mastered it. <laughs> oh, well, that's nice of you to say. I'm, uh, we're all still students and we're all still learning. Okay, we have some leadership best practice and guiding principles. And can you share with our leaders and listening audience some principles that comes to you? Yeah, so around the topic that I think you wanted me to talk about today, which is accountability, first, you have to make sure that people understand what your expectations are. So we begin when we orient people and we tell them, look, this is a place where we want to give preeminent service. Did you feel something different when you walked in here today? And most of them say yes. People are friendlier, happier, and all that. And so, yeah, well, here are the behaviors around that. Our three core values are respect, passion, and professionalism. And I have yet to find a behavior I don't want to praise in public or criticize in private that doesn't fall under one of those buckets. And then you give some examples. Well, that's a step of people have to know what success looks like and what do you expect. We expect preeminent service. We expect you to do it in a way that isn't to not be a jerk. That's thing one, respect. You know, so <laughs> the opposite of respect is don't be a jerk or the corollary of that. So you say, we want to deliver preeminent service. Ask if you went to the finest restaurant in town, if you'd be happy with that type of effort or that type of service. If you went to a great hospital and you were sick, would you be happy with that kind of call bell response time or whatever it is? Just imagine yourself in an upscale situation where you've paid a lot of money for it. And you can probably answer the question for yourself. What does preeminent service look like to you? Well, that's what we want to be here. So you have to set the bar high in terms of this is what success looks like. And you have to communicate that. Some leaders get trapped in, well, I can't coach them about that because I never told them about that. Well, some things you don't have to, some things it's okay to assume people know. Like tie your shoe or you're going to trip. So if somebody purposely didn't tie their shoe, it wouldn't be my fault that they tripped that morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's some, some things that just come with the job. But yes, you want to make an effort to communicate what does success look like and what are the expectations. And malpractice, leadership malpractice 101 is expecting too little and starting off with very low expectations and communicating low expectations to people. So you want to talk about preeminence and excellence and, and remind people that people paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in an entry fee that's non-refundable to live here. They can't afford to make a mistake and just whoops, I think I'll try the next retirement community for that amount of money. They're, they're here. Again, setting out that clear expectation and being transparent about what success looks like is key. Another principle, I think, is feedback. Again, you can't lead if you can't confront. And confrontation doesn't always mean bad, but you have to be able to give feedback to people. Hey, I saw that, and I really like the way you approached that situation with that person. Or, hey, I see that you're getting a lot more uh, happy or not comment cards that are positive in the overlook this month. Wow, what did you do different? This is great, you know, that sort of thing. And then when things are bad, you do have to confront and say, you know, what's going on? What do you think? How, what's your plan to fix it? Have you considered this? Have you considered that? That's a gentle first kind of accountability. And then the ultimate accountability is you've got to make a decision as to what's the likelihood that this person in this role can get to preeminence and what effort is involved between point A and point B in getting them there and is the chance of success worth the effort. It's a happier conclusion when you can say, okay, they're not good at this role and I don't think they're going to make it, but let's try them in a different role. And that's always better. If they've got the will, that professional drive, then you certainly want to try them 
in a different role that better matches their skill set if they don't acquire in a reasonable time that that skill set. But the hardest things in life to do as a leader are to confront the situations where a worker is willing but unable. They're not going to have the ability to develop the skill set necessary for that role. And if you don't have another role for them, that's really tough because they're trying their best. But it was a bad hire or you gambled that they could take that promotion and do well and it's not working out. And so you want to preserve people's dignity as much as possible. But if you fail to act and you leave somebody in a situation where they're over their head or they don't have the skill set, that's not fair to them. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to the residents, most importantly, because the residents are the ones who would suffer from poor performance or paying for performance where you have to hire a second person to come in alongside them and really do the job. Well, then that's two people that are on the payroll. All of our labor goes to the monthly fee. It can't come out of the entry fee. So there are reasons why it matters that you have the leadership courage to confront the opportunities and the problems that you see and to do something about it. Aristotle said courage is the first virtue because without that, none of the others matter. I mean, you have to be courageous. You have to, you have to step in and, and make a difference, be a difference maker. That was very powerful, uh, the skill set, because like you say, it could be a wrong hire. And then you have to come to terms that it is a wrong hire. Mm-hmm. And now we have to go back. But are you willing to admit that it is a wrong hire? Yeah. And Yeah, I think you do need to learn from your mistakes. John Erickson, the fellow who was so successful in creating these very large 2,500-member retirement communities where the beauty of that was you got to get economies of scale, made the product far more affordable, and you could get more to middle-income seniors. You know, he said that Jack Welch, and I have read this book since, and I, I like the book, I hate the title, Winning, but Jack Welch, some people may remember, was the head of GE. And he said that when he started out as a manager, he hired correctly 50% of the time, and he worked his way up to 80 And he thought he was a genius. So that means you could be wrong 20% of the time. And you have to know what to do with that 20%. You have to have the courage to deal with that 20%. You have to have the courage to deal with it in a way that's humane, that gives people chances, that shifts them where their skill sets have other matches and all the rest. But you have to do something about it. If you tolerate it and you sweep it under the rug because you're embarrassed that you made a mistake, you're not the one suffering. The residents are the ones suffering. The customers are the ones suffering. And you got to weigh all that out. Yes, and training and development. What can you say to the uh, listening audience and those who want to achieve a greater accountability and moving forward in the company and the organization? So we have all kinds of uh, financial programs to assist those who want to learn, even extending to your family members. But if it's related to a job, there are ways to get tuition paid, tuition paid in advance. You have to stay with us for a year. You have to pay back the last year of tuition. Uh, If you leave us after you finish a year, you, you owe us at least the next year. But there's all kinds of ways for us to finance anyone's self-improvement. The leaders should be good at plucking out and pulling up alongside the raw talent in which they see potential to move people ahead and encouraging them to take advantage of training. But don't depend on that. 
you're the captain of your own ship. You're an adult. You're the head of Ben Uncle Enterprises or whatever, selling your services to Westminster. Ben Uncle could invest it himself. Certainly, I'm not talking about the money. Again, we'll provide the money if it's job-related, the training. But you're the captain of your own career, too. And you should speak up. And when you talk to your boss, you should be saying, hey, enjoying this job, what's next for me? Let them know that you're ambitious. Let them know that you have interest in other areas. You know, get to speak up for yourself. As much as we like to hire preeminent leaders, we don't always get it right. Jack Welch, again, got it wrong 20% of the time. So anyway, we will have our share of strong and weak leaders. Any human organization does. So as an employee, take control of your own training and development. If you see something out there, ask to have it reimbursed or paid by the company and do it. Not going to be a trip to Hawaii, you know. Uh, we'll look for an online version of the same course. But anyway, <laughs> within reasonable bounds, of course, we want to invest in everybody. Yes, and also lead by example. When you lead by example, and I'm a firm believer on that, I have certain standards that I take pride of. And to lead by example, it means that I'm not going to lower myself and the standards that I feel and I hold value to. And sometimes people take advantage of that because they know your standards or she'll do it. Uh, We can count on her. Mm -hmm. But still, I'm not going to allow that portrait to be bringing me down because they're not coming up to their par. And so as leaders that I work in the company for different departments. I've seen sometimes you get lost in the system. And like you said, you have to speak up. And when you speak up, me being at Westminster for like four years now, I'm seeing great potential in my position that I stand and my values and what I could bring to the organization. And to be accountable That's the integrity that I have to walk in. And values, passion, and respect, it all molds you into the accountability that the company would like to see in their leaders. Sure, exactly right. And lead by example, what does that mean in terms of accountability? It means when your team sees that there's somebody who's unwilling or unable to pull their weight or that's dragging people down. Not every team is going to have somebody like you who steps in and fills the void. We hope that. We try to train for that and notice it and encourage it. But the team certainly knows who needs help or needs training or needs replacing. And the longer they see you tolerate that, the more you're leading with the wrong example on accountability. Now, you don't have to say so-and-so left us yesterday because and give a reason they just know from watching your decisions over time and who stays and who goes whether you're serious about accountability or whether you're somebody who is so nice they can't confront i mean and that's often that's what it comes down to it's not a bad trait it's a nice trait it's a strength over applied it's niceness which we all want but niceness that's not regulated or disciplined to do the necessary confrontation in private to tell people, hey, here's the bar and you're here and the bar's here. We got to have a plan to get you up to this bar. (laughs) 
And, you know, so that this is a long-term relationship that works out for our residents and for us and for the rest of your teammates. And you have to be willing to uh, say that and to have a real conversation. Yes. Okay. What do you see yourself in the next three to five years in the company? Well, luckily enough, I'm the CEO, so that helps. Uh, so, um, so I've been that since uh, 14 years, but it's a good question. So had I been hired and we were in a turnaround situation then, gotten the financial turnaround and the performance turnaround that we needed done, and we stayed the same and we didn't add home health, we didn't add home hospice, we didn't continue to grow and evolve, I would have been gone somewhere else. I'm a changer and a builder. I'm not a stay steady kind of a guy. I always think you're either playing offense or defense. And it was fun playing defense during the turnaround. And that's kind of offense because you needed to play it. You need to get out of that situation. And then it's offense in terms of a continuous improvement and evolving to get a larger organization, which I think we absolutely must do here. Or the complexity of what our industry does is growing so much. We'll be purchased by somebody else or asking someone else to purchase us in the long term if we don't get bigger to afford the systems and the talent base that we need to handle the future complexity. So it's always been my mission to get the organization bigger because it's more likely to stay in control of its mission. So I I have a built-in need to uh, grow and to change because the industry requires that of us if we're going to stay in control of our mission. There's some small organizations that don't know that yet, and they're in a pot that's boiling, and I'm starting to see the stress cracks on those smaller organizations folding their tents into other organizations and all the rest. We have an imperative to do more and do better and to be in diverse business lines, I think, to stay in control of our ministry and our mission. But that suits my personality, too. Again, I, I, you know, just keeping the soup warm every day would not appeal to me. I like change. I like evolution. I like inventing. I like new frontiers, new business lines, new revenue sources, those sorts of things. That's what excites me. But what do you do to relax? Uh, to my wife's consternation, I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I love being a student, and I like learning. So I'm reading a lot, watching instruction a lot. I like teaching when I have the opportunity to teach. So I like education. I like to sail. I don't do that as much as I would like to. Every now and then I think about going to school for um, personal aircraft piloting. That's one step below the license, the personal aircraft where you can take out your own powered hang glider or something and go over out over the ocean and come back in and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, to relax, mostly I take my mind to another place. Often it could be reading about somebody else's problems like a war i'm reading about napoleon right now you know and so that's fun and i like learning and discovering things that's how i relax is to engage my brain on a different set of topics oh good and of course being around people and socializing is good i like to go out to dinner with people and have good conversation okay in our closing remarks can you share with the listening audience what principle and practice most stood out to you in accountability in your career? I think the ownership mentality is what most stood out to me. Are you somebody who owns the outcome, not just the effort, but tries to own the outcome and bird dogs the problems until they're solved to completion? So when you hire a team member, 
let's say we had a cafe here, you know, a fourth hypothetical food venue that is yet to be invented, Minnie's Cafe. Does the person who runs Minnie's Cafe, ideally Minnie, feel like that that's her cafe, that she owns that experience beginning to end for every customer that goes in there? And owns means recognizing obstacles, overcoming them, that every day is going to be perfect. But do I own trying to deliver preeminent service every day that we can, as much as we can? And am I willing to do and address every gap in that service? That's ownership. And you can apply that ownership mentality to anything. Oh, gee, I haven't moved up in my career because my boss doesn't notice I'm any good and never suggested the training for me. Well, is that an ownership attitude or a victim attitude? It's a victim attitude. The ownership attitude is, I'm going to go in to my boss and to HR and say, I want to move up in the company. What's the career ladder that next goes from this position? There's three or four career ladders that we've drawn up that are in HR. For From this job, this job is open and that. What's my career ladder? What kind of training do I need? Show me the job description for the next job up that you pick out that you might like to do. And then say, what are my gaps and how do I fill those gaps? So... Ownership attitude applies to everything from your own career, to the way you run your department, to the way you run your person, not blaming others, not being a victim, doing what it takes to be preeminent and excellent individually as a team and as a business. Wow, I love it. I just want to thank you for your time and the principles and guidelines that you provide to the listening audience It blessed me just to hear it. It's fun being with you. You did a great job as an interviewer. You've got a future on radio, even though we have other tasks before you that we hope you still enjoy doing. You're not going to make her a full-time podcaster, are you, Roy? Um, I don't know. She's good at it. Yeah, we're not going to tell Kathy Lewis about you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. All right. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Westminster Canterbury Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. 